0: Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay is joined by a well known figure in the process movement, Rabbi Dr. Bradley Shavit Artson. Rabbi Artson holds the Abner and Rosalind Goldstein Dean's Chair of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and is Vice President of American Jewish University in Los Angeles. He is a member of the Philosophy Department and is particularly interested in theology, ethics, and the integration of science and religion. He supervises the Miller Introduction to Judaism program and mentors Camp Rama in California. Rabbi Artson is also dean of the Zacharias Frankel College in Potsdam, Germany, ordaining rabbis for the European Union. A regular columnist for the Huffington Post and for the Times of Israel, he is the author of 10 books and over 250 articles. His most recent book is God of Becoming and Relationship, the Dynamic Nature of Process Theology.
1: Welcome to Conversations in Process. It's such a privilege and joy to be with Rabbi Bradley Artson today. Uh, we're old friends, so I will call him Brad. And I just can't wait to uh, learn with him and from him in this conversation. Brad, it's great to have you.
2: Thank and, you, Brad. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, I always love being with you, too. Well,
1: it's reciprocal. So let's get down to it. Okay. Let's not beat around the bush. Go for it. Um. Uh, What is it that grounds
2: you spiritually as a human being? Great. So, you know, these are challenging times for everybody. Um, But when isn't it a challenging time? We we're sheltering in our homes. We're trying to keep our loved ones safe and not infect anybody else. So we wear masks and we restrict how often we go out and all of that. And then the world has become hyper-partisan. So there's all those challenges on top of just the existential challenges we all face, trying to stay healthy, facing illness, facing mortality, all the normal challenges. I'll tell you what's been doing it for me. Two things, one more predictable, one less. In, In rabbinic Judaism, we're obligated to pray three times a day, liturgical prayer, meaning prayers that are found in a book. So... Every day, I start the day by putting on my prayer shawl and putting on my tefillin, the phylacteries. Um, and I happen to have my great-grandfather's tefillin. So I literally wrap myself in the love of the people who've come before us. And, and my prayer life with God has grown far more regular and far deeper. Look, I don't have to commute anymore. I finally have time. So those three times a day of checking in, they're incredibly grounding for me. The other thing I think is especially, I think of you, Jay, because from you, I learned about the way God loves animals. Um, I will never forget poor pelicans because of what you taught me. Um, but but here's what we've been doing. My wife Ilana decided we were going to use this time to start raising monarch butterflies. So we have a bunch of milkweed plants outside, and we have been raising and harvesting these little eggs. they dot. Little dots of white, and you protect them until they hatch as itty bitty little caterpillars. Then you place them on the plant and they eat and grow to be about 2,000 times their original size. It's unbelievable to watch. And then they form the most beautiful chrysalis I've ever seen in my life. They're a, a creamy green color with gold dots. Uh, you know, I live right near Beverly Hills, so a little bling is always a good thing. And and then you wait. And the day before they come out, the chrysalis, the cocoon goes transparent and you can see the orange and black pattern of their wings inside. And when they come out, it takes them about a couple hours to dry the wings and get ready. And then they fly into the world, having everything they need to be a butterfly. And that feels to me like such a powerful reminder of what we're doing. We are sheltering in our cocoons. And it may look like we're not doing much, but we're doing a great deal for when we're able to fly out into the world again. And so that gives me an abiding source of hope and groundedness.
1: Oh, that's such a beautiful image. Thanks for sharing. And I feel the same way. These days, um, birds have meant a lot to me. Every morning I go out on the front porch and, and listen to the birds. It's actually their sounds, but because yes. I can't see them. It's yes. like a choir, a chorus. And one thing about it is, it's more than me. They're more than me. They don't always refer back to, to the human, to me. And there's something so gratifying about that. That's right. Uh, Brad, you mentioned uh, your prayer life deepening. Um, have you been praying three times a day, much of your life as a rabbi or is that new for you or a little
2: relative to my life story that wasn't something i had as a child Mm -hmm. i grew up as an atheist um born and raised in san francisco which is a fabulous place to be an atheist because there's lots of fun things to do um and I didn't, I, I was always identified as a Jew, but, you know, for some of your readers, it might be useful to know, Judaism isn't reducible to a creed or a practice, right? One who is a Jew who's not at all religious is a Jew who's not religious, because it's a shared heritage and destiny. It's a shared, like it doesn't really fit any Western categories. So I was very identified as part of the Jewish people, but not at all religious. And I became religious in college because of two Christian friends that I had the pleasure of getting to know, and they remain very precious to me to this day. Um, And I could see how religion lifted them up and made them better and more resilient I knew that their path wasn't for me, so I went and spoke to the rabbi on campus, and he said, you can't think about God from a neutral place. You have to try out being a believer and see what that does for you. So he got me to agree to go to synagogue services every Sabbath for two months, and he gave me a book of a German-Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig. Um, Many of our listeners might be familiar with Martin Buber, who has had better PR out in the non-Jewish world. Uh, But Rosenzweig and Buber were partners in many of their enterprises, and and Rosenzweig is a remarkable, courageous, resilient voice. And I, I literally fell in love with God and Torah that semester in college. Now, in fairness, Jay, it could have been hormonal, that was the same semester that I met Ilana. So it may have just been that I was primed for love, both carnal and divine. Um, but I'm happy to tell you that uh, this last week, Ilana and I celebrated our 37th anniversary. And God and I are on track to celebrate pretty much the same one. So, so that's a good thing. Um, and then I started to grow in observance because that hadn't been part of my life. So I started taking on more of the mitzvot, more of the commandments. Um, and by the time I got to rabbinical school, I was already observing the dietary laws, the kosher laws, and I was also strictly uh, Sabbath observant and observing the holidays. And part of the part of the deal is praying three times a day. I just want to also say... Um, A religious Jew doesn't merely pray three times a day. Three times is the minimum, and it's the times you have to have a book to use to say statutory prayers. But, of course, personal petitions and personal prayers, those are all day, every day. Um, There's a, a teaching from the 1800s that you should live your life in such a way that every breath is prayer, every moment is prayer, every action is prayer.
1: So did the, when you started uh, the statutory prayers, did that come naturally to you? I mean, was that a gift to you or did you at first struggle and then it became natural or a little
2: bit about that journey? Sure. I guess I don't think I have to choose between did it, was it a gift or did it come naturally? Um, My rabbi in rabbinical school who had a huge influence on me was a remarkable man named Simon Greenberg. And at his 90th birthday celebration, I remember asking him, at what point in your life, Dr. Greenberg, did the mitzvahs, the commandments, become natural or easy to you? And he said, I'll let you know. So I don't have an expectation of it becoming easy. And in some ways, the only way it becomes easy is if you don't have it as part of your conscious awareness, but if you're taking on that every moment is an opportunity to serve the divine, every moment is an opportunity to enhance the dignity of creation, then you don't want that to become second nature. You want that to stop you in your tracks. And then you want to choose it afresh every moment. So I, I will say that it's now pretty regular. My my prayer shawl and prayer book is right behind me right when pointing to it right now you see that little golden blue behind me that that bag is my tallest bag so i've got it handy dandy and i pray right over uh, there um so um so i'm set up for it
0: Mm -hmm.
2: but i do try to break the habit so that it becomes a matter of deliberate choice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I love—I love, I love uh, so much that I know about Judaism, and I'm also jealous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have wished for um, for God to command me to pray in that regular way. So I really think, and I understand what you're saying, that it doesn't need to be easy. Um, right. The difficulty too um, can be actually
2: a good thing. Um, so, so um, Jay, I'll share mine since you shared yours.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's important to cultivate holy jealousy. Uh Those aspects of other people's wisdom traditions that you say, ooh, that's really good. I'd like that. (laughs) So I will tell you that I've been working on meditating. And that's the holy envy that I have towards our Buddhist and Hindu friends. Um, and I've tried to grow in my ability to be still and silent and to empty out and to resonate. Uh, And I do it with, um, with incense, which was part of the biblical tradition. You know that there was incense in the temple, but it hasn't been inside synagogues since the temple fell. So I've taken that on too. And then when I think of Christian tradition, I'm envious of a phrase. I wish there were a part of our scripture that just said straight out, God is love. Um, because I think that just boils it all down to its core. And, um, and I think it's good to train ourselves to feel holy envy uh, and to know that it's okay to borrow wisdom from other faith traditions. My grandmother used to tell my grandfather that she didn't care where he got his appetite so long as he came home for supper. It took me a while to realize she wasn't talking about actual food, um, but I think the principle holds in the realm of religion too. It doesn't matter where you get your appetite so long as you come home for supper.
1: Yeah. Well, I just want to say you can have God as love. It's fine, <laughs> please. Thank you, I have I've taken Thank that off. And, and, and speaking of God, I think we'll turn to that. Now, I know that your image of God changed over the years, and I know the role that process eventually took. But can you take us on that journey just a little bit? Sure. Who was God when you first took your, your Judaism religiously seriously?
2: Who was God then? And, so I will tell you God? what has never changed. From the moment I became religious, it was always with God at the center. Mm -hmm. And I always had a very intimate and very personal sense of God. What I didn't have was a thought through understanding. So I had this intuitive sense of of God as monarch and lover and guide and presence. And, and, And I mean that in very simple ways. There have been recurrent times in my life where God broke through and where I felt God's presence the way I feel someone standing in the room looking at me. Um, there are times where God, I think, told me what I needed to know or what I needed to do with something that I was struggling with or helped me through a crisis. Um, So, I always had that sense, but I thought I was supposed to believe in an eternal, all powerful God who was fully in control. And I always had trouble with that. That never sat easily with me, although I certainly tried to wear that. Um, And with that, a God who literally issues commands. Um, And that also never sat so easily with me. Um, And then, if I'm being very honest, what really bumped me out of that was we had twins, Jacob and Shira, my wife and I, and at two and a half, it was quite clear that Jacob had a pretty severe kind of autism. Um, And he has been wrestling with that autism ever since. And at that point, I faced a spiritual crisis. If everything that happens happens because God wants it to, then God did that to Jacob the best you could say is that God didn't prevent it. But to me, those are two ways of saying the same thing. And I didn't and don't for the life of me see how it's moral to worship someone who would do that to my son. You know, if if a next door neighbor fed him poison such that he had this kind of neurological disability, we would want to, at the very least, imprison that person for life, right? Um, So to now worship, a deity who does that to Jacob, that felt like a betrayal of my son. So I spent two years, I was a congregational rabbi at the time, I spent two years not talking to or about God. Now one thing you need to know about American synagogue life is no one will notice. Uh, I talked about values, I talked about holidays, I talked about history, I talked literature, nobody noticed that I never ever talked about God. Um, And what I started to do, I needed to figure out how this could happen to me. How could I spend all my days doing good in the world, helping people with their faith and with their life crises, and then have this happen in my own personal life? And so I decided the way I was going to do that, and I know this is weird, I decided that I would get a doctorate in the universe, Like what kind of a universe are we living in and how does this happen? So I've managed to find a wonderful, wonderful rabbi and scholar, David Ellenson at Hebrew Union College, who's just a fine human being, great scholar. And he said, that's really unusual. That's not a normal topic, but okay. So I started reading science again. I started reading evolutionary biology and neurophysics and uh, cognitive psychology and cosmogony and all of those kinds of things um, to try and I realized uh, you'll you'll appreciate this it, it's funny but it's true um, I say that I invented process theology and then because it occurred to me the universe wasn't made out of solid substances that bang into each other externally that the universe is made of interlocking patterns of energy that are constantly being reformulated in the light of the reformulation of everything else and that we're all interrelated and we're all becoming who we are. But, and then imagine my surprise in reading on science. I saw there was a book on panentheism, which I had not heard of up until then. And I read through it and it's a fabulous book edited by a, a mutual friend of ours, Philip Clayton. Uh, and And then I got to the chapter on process panentheism, and I realized, son of a gun, Whitehead beat me to it by a hundred years. Um, so sure, he gets all the credit, even though I did the heavy lifting. Um, but what I discovered through Whitehead was a community of brothers and sisters with whom we share this insight that the universe is relational and dynamic and becoming and that god is the one who holds that possibility of becoming together and allows us to relate to each other and to the universe by being part of it not by being outside of it and that god isn't all-powerful or all-knowing god is vastly smart and vastly powerful, but the power God exercises is not coercive. It's an invitation that God is inviting us and everything to choose cosmos and not chaos, and that we each of us are faced with a choice, and that having created us, God respects and has to respect our own interiority, our own ability to make decisions too. And that for me was profoundly liberating because it meant God wasn't doing this to my son, that autism happens in an open universe, but that God wasn't abandoning Jacob and wasn't abandoning me. And when I I gave a talk once on process thought to a group and Jacob was listening and when the talk was wrapping up, he came up and my son doesn't communicate so much verbally. He He does facilitated typing. Um, assisted communication. And he held out his hand because that's the sign he wants to type. And I took his elbow because I held him at the elbow and and he typed, so if you're, what you're saying is true, Abba, then God didn't make me autistic. And I said, that's right. I don't believe in a God who made you autistic. And he said, and God is still working through me. And I said, that's right. God will never abandon you. God is at every moment letting you know what the optimum next choice is and giving you the power to select it but you are free to decide and jacob typed okay i need to go listen for the lure and he walked out and since then jacob has said to me that the torah saved his life were it not for torah he would have perished and that process saved the torah for him that if he had to believe in a dictator in the sky who wrote citations to people for violating this regulation or that he would have had to give the whole thing up if he had to believe that god was a bully in the sky who was tormenting him he'd have to give it up but process made it possible for him to embrace this cosmic companion of ours and and that made all the difference and it did for me too
1: well thank you so much for sharing and i've been reading um, about Jacob for, for quite some time, and I feel close to him. I've, I've never met him, but I, I feel close to him through you. So uh, please tell him
2: hello. I will, because you are one of his heroes. I don't know if you remember, but several years ago when you were teaching, you had one of your students who did a presentation on some of Jacob's essays, and she sent say. him a recorded text message, which we still have. That's right. Listen yeah. to it. That's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, Brett, I share with you that sense of a, of a, a deep companion. Uh, when I pray, uh, I think that there's someone listening. Yeah. And I don't expect that someone to manipulate the world in ways that conform to my will or even thy will. Right. But, but I do feel that there's a deep companion. I also know people for whom the, the feeling of a personal God like that just doesn't exist. They just can't go there. And I'm sure that you, there are many, uh, many Jews, many of your friends who feel the same way. What do you do with people who say, I have a sense of the divine, but it's not personal like that?
2: Right. Uh, that arts and, yeah, what do you make of that? So here's what I would say to them and to us. I think Jewish tradition is wise in many places. One of the places it's wise is it teaches that God's name is ineffable. You can't say it, right? And I think that's not, you're not capable of saying it. I think it's that there's no way to encapsulate it verbally. And when someone says they can't think of God as personal, they're saying that that set of metaphors for the divine is dead for them, or for, in some cases, toxic for them. I don't stand in the way of what works for people and what doesn't. What I say to them is, okay, there are an infinite number of ways to construe the divine. And any way you talk about God, a force, an energy field, that's a metaphor too. They're all metaphors. There isn't a literal way to step outside of becoming and to acknowledge being. So all we can do is we throw imperfect images, metaphors, visuals, whatever. And I think the more ways we imagine the divine, the better. I think that um, like a symphony, the more different notes are being played at any one moment, the richer the total sound. So I'm okay with that. I never try to talk people into it. Uh, In the same way that, you know, if for someone Christian clusters of metaphors about the divine works, that's great. I have no need to talk them out of that. I have no need to talk someone out of whichever cluster works for them. But I do want to help them with their woundedness. There are a lot of people today who have been wounded by other people's vision of God. And they've been scolded out of feeling safe. Right, So God is judging them. God hates them. God despises who they are. And that can be because of who they love or how big or small they are or the color of their skin. or I mean, we humans come up with countless reasons to marginalize and diminish each other. And so if I can help people understand that God hates that, God is above and beyond all of that, and that God clearly is someone who revels in diversity, because God has made a universe that keeps getting more diverse. If anything, it's getting more diverse over the course of time, not less. So so if I can help people understand that and then take their place as one of God's children, I think that's one of the powers of process thought and of this whole system.
1: You mentioned, I know that metaphors are important to you and language is important to you and, and freedom of language is important to you. When I read your writings, I I, I enjoy the poetic flair. Um, I like that a lot. Um, can you talk a bit about the Bible, about Torah? Um, I read the Psalms um, every day. Mm-hmm. And there are things in the Psalms I just, oh, I don't feel that. Somebody does, mm-hmm. but but I don't. And I can't quite think of God that way. And so right. t- tell me about your approach to the Bible, if you will. Sure.
2: Um, I've been actually reading a lot about this very subject. I'm gearing up to write a book about process thinking and revelation. So, mm-hmm. so this is what I've been spending a lot of my time with. Let me share with you a wonderful... Um, a wonderful set of images from Jewish mysticism, from Kabbalah and Hasidut. The Hasidic masters teach that when the world was first created, the Torah was everywhere. It just wasn't verbal. So there's this non-verbal, like picture radio waves, sort of, right? This reverberation everywhere all the time, but it's not in words. And that cosmic Torah is utterly perfect, but it can't interact with this world because this world is not perfect. It needs to take form and to do that, there has to be a shrinking, a withdrawing. And so they teach that when the patriarchs and matriarchs were alive, there was this cosmic background radiation Torah, which they were able to intuit, but they couldn't really interact with because it wasn't manageable, it wasn't words. All right. Hi, Jacob.
0: Hi. i I like to have a simple.
2: Jacob, I'm talking to my friend. So, how about you come back in ten minutes? Okay. I know. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Go ahead, wow. One of the joys of working at home. Um. So, so what happened was God needed to find a way to reduce the Torah from this cosmic potential perfection into something real. And that happened at Sinai. The understanding is that God reduced the Torah into words. But of course, the Torah that is clothed in words is not the perfect background cosmic Torah. That still exists. This is a particular instantiation. And there's more cosmic Torah still to be had. So they teach that every time a sage reads and interprets the Bible, that sage is distilling more cosmic Torah. That means Torah and revelation is not an event, it's a process. And it's a process without end. And we each of us have a role to play by actively reading the Bible and saying to ourselves, what is God saying to me in this story, in this prohibition, in this mandate, In this poetry, how is God speaking to me and how is God not? In your case, I guess I'd invite you to hear the way God is inviting your soul to differentiate itself from some of the things the psalmist says. We don't want to smash the babies against the rock, just to mention one example, right? Um, And that too is revelation to say, no, 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 that's not where we're at. We're not going to do that. Um, I think that's part of the ongoing relationality of revelation that a process understanding highlights and makes visible. Mm.
1: Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Thank thank you. And I'd really never thought of it that way. So that's very, very helpful to me. Uh, Brad, would you say that the um, hills and rivers and trees and stars and plants and animals are also revelation in some way?
0: Uh, well can
1: you say, you about the role of the more than human world and your understanding of revelation?
2: Great. So one of the things that I get out of process is that there's no such thing as supernatural. There's super comma natural exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. Right? Nature is so marvelous that there's no room for and no need for a supernatural realm. Because nature is more extraordinary than we've ever given it credit for. The people who reduced nature into a dead machine missed many of the exciting parts of nature. Paradox, of course, is that because of that scientific method, we've seen so many ways that nature violates machine-like behavior that we wouldn't have seen had it not been for the people who started with this Newtonian assumption that it's just a dead machine. But living in super nature, um, I see ourselves as part of something truly extraordinary, you know. And there are so many things in nature that bring me to a place of awe and absolute wonder. So human consciousness, frankly, not just human consciousness, you know, amoeba consciousness, it is so... Unlikely and so inexplicable. You can't really go from third-person descriptions of neurons to what it feels like the first time you muster up the guts to take someone by the hand, right? And and so so that added piece, the third person to second person, that you and me, that's the marvel part. That's the super nature. Part, Or how a universe that has supposedly exploded into existence 14 billion years ago, instead of getting more and more evenly dispersed over those 14 billion years, has become more and more complex over those 14 billion years. Well, that kind of defies scientific explanation as well. And then you get the moments where you have personal encounters that feel revelatory. So I don't know about you, I live with a dog. And this dog, Molly, is an entire universe, you know, and sometimes I think I understand her and sometimes her dogginess comes out in ways that I go, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, But part of what it shows me is what loyalty looks like. You know, what does it mean to be so in love with someone that when they want to sit in the living room, that's exactly what you want to do. And when they want to move into the dining room, you want to move into the dining room. And when they want to take a walk, that's exactly what you want to do. And I think about what would it be like if I could be the person my dog thinks I am, right? So, so there's revelation there. You talked about birds. Our next door neighbor has about 50 birds in the backyard. And so every morning I wake up to bird song. There was an old... Catholic tradition in the Old West. Um, People in the Pueblo used to wake each other up in the morning by the first person awake would start to sing a psalm or a hymn. And the whole house, as you woke up, you would join in the hymn until everyone in the whole house is lying in their room, lying in bed, singing a hymn together. Well, the birds remind me that that's my choice too. I also can wake up singing songs of praise. So I think we have that all the time. Last Sunday, Jacob and I went to the ocean. One of the blessings of living in California, we, we we go to the ocean every chance we get. And the waves were gentle, and the water was perfect. And you step into the ocean, and you're returning to your mother. And um, so I think there is both the revelation of words, and that's precious to any recipient of a religious tradition. But then we need to remember that's just one example of the ongoing outpouring of divine abundance, most of which never makes it into words, most of which comes to us as sunshine and flowers and butterflies and birds and all kinds of ways of letting us know that we're part of something really precious.
1: Uh, a word about Molly. Uh, I have dogs too. I love them. And your um, essay mm. from some years ago about the death of, a, of an earlier companion. Yes. Um, uh, and I think you titled it, or at least we titled it, she was of
2: benefit to herself. Yeah, and the amazing thing, Jay, is is you may not recall, but I didn't come up with that. Mm-hmm. I, I, My dog at the time was sick and was diagnosed with throat cancer. Mm-hmm. And the vet was explaining to me that at some point we'd have to put her down. and And I said, well, how do you know when to do that? Mm-hmm. It's not like they come with a label and the label changes color one day. How do you know? Mm-hmm. And he said to me, you'll know she should live as long as she's a benefit to herself. Mm -hmm. And the minute he said it, I said, oh my God, I have to put that in an article. That's got to get out in the world because that's true not only for the dogs, it's true for us, Mm -hmm. right? The measure of the worth of our life is so long as we feel like we're a benefit to ourselves. We don't have to be a benefit to someone else. We don't have to live up to someone else's standards of what accomplishment means. So long as we feel that getting up in the morning is a benefit, then your life is a benefit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we rest, I wrestle with that with a loved one um, who has Alzheimer's. Yeah. And We continually ask the question, uh, is his life of benefit to himself? Right. And it's hard to know sometimes. It's That's very hard. hard to know. But yeah. it's the question. It's the question to be asked.
2: Right. And I guess what I'd invite us to and what that vet, I think, was alluding to is that the dog can be a benefit to herself, even if I don't get it. Yes. Yes. Right. So what kind of interiority is there for someone whose brain is being ravaged in that way so that although we not may be able to draw out an interaction, perhaps their interiority is beautiful. Right. And and that's the hard thing for people who love others to have to assess all the time. Right. But I guess what I want to remind us is being a blessing to yourself doesn't mean being a blessing in a way that I would consider being a blessing to myself. You get to have different criteria for what counts as being a blessing.
1: And, and you get to be different from who you were. That's right. Your self is not reducible to who you were That's 10 right. years ago, 20 years ago. We get to be different selves. That's a process perspective, too, and particularly important.
2: I love that. And I, I want to highlight that by also saying we also affirm not the Maimonidean Aquinas god of timeless stasis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That God is the one who is always self-surpassing. And God is always becoming different, better than God was. That's and in that regard, we are godlike, mm. our capacity mm. to grow and be self-surpassing, not to be trapped by mm. what used to limit us, and things that we used to like no longer speak to us, or things we used to do that we no longer want to do or can do.
1: I think that's related a little bit to the notion in Christianity of, of redemption. Uh, when a tragedy occurs, or when you've done something terrible, um, can you grow past it? Is there something in the universe that enables you yeah. to move into a fresh possibility? It doesn't erase what happened, but right. you get to be a new self.
2: Right. And, uh, and that metaphor, that system, is so pertinent to this time of year. Mm-hmm. Right? In, in the Jewish religion we are in the month of Elul, which is the month before our most holy days of the year, the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Festival of Sukkot, the Tabernacle Festival. And, and Elul, it's interesting, the Hebrew word Elul is made of four Hebrew letters, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, which is an acronym for I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So we see this as a time of particular intimacy between the individual soul and God. And the core to it, and one of the places where Judaism expresses this very differently, um, is to say that at any point and for virtually any sin— a Jew is capable of making things right and of repenting. And when you do those two things, they're not the same. First, you have to make it right if the sin involved another human being. right? So you have to take whatever punishment, pay whatever penalty, seek their forgiveness, and prove to them that you're worthy of it. Um, And once you've done that, then you can turn to God and seek God's forgiveness. And our tradition teaches that you are, if I could borrow a phrase, born again, right? That you're no longer the, when you've really repented, then you're no longer the person who would be capable of behaving in that other way. And therefore the punishment is no longer relevant to you. So there is a long tradition going back to the Talmud, to the Mishnah, thousands of years old within Judaism, that people are not defined by their previous mistakes if they have changed sufficiently so that they're no longer the person who committed that mistake. You can't hold on to the rage. You can't hold on to the lack of control and say, I'm a new person. But if you do the inner work, to become the person who's not capable of that, then that's no longer on you and you can let it go. That's what the temple ritual allowed. You used to be able to go to the temple and first confess and then repent and then offer a sacrifice which made you clean. And now, says the rabbis, all you need is prayer and you can repent having done the work directly.
1: Well, Brad, um, so much of what you say and write I just nod my head, too. I mean, I just think, yep, that's what I think, too. That's what I think, too. So that that leads me to turn to the question, um, how do your constituencies respond to this vision, this perspective you have, which for the moment we'll call Jewish process theology, but we'll turn to terminology in a moment. But how do they respond?
2: So I will tell you that among the places I've spoken at synagogues, All across North America, in Israel, in Europe, and I even gave a talk on process theology in Uganda because I have a graduate who's a rabbi of a community outside of Mabali. And people take to it as though they've always known it, they just didn't know they were allowed to know it. Mm -hmm. So in the Jewish community, I get very little resistance. I imagine if I spoke in an Orthodox congregation, there would be more resistance. Mm -hmm. But among non-Orthodox Jews, which is about 90% of North American Jewry, this is what they've thought, they've just never heard a rabbi say it. So I feel like I am returning a lost object. Um, And that's how they receive it. You know, the two books that I published of Process Theology, were co-published by my denomination, which is one of the largest Jewish denominations, conservative Judaism. So I don't have a sense within Judaism of being marginal. I don't have a sense of being told, well, that's not really Judaism. Um, To the contrary, I have a sense of when people hear this, they go, well, I guess that is what I always thought. I just never knew how to say it.
1: Yeah, I, I think you once joked with me, uh, it's much harder for a Christian to be a process theologian than for a Jew.
2: Yeah, no, no. You guys, You guys have my absolute sympathy, and I feel like <laughs> I should be helping you lift the burden, because, you know, nobody tells me that I'm not a Trinitarian. <laughs> when
1: I think occasionally uh, we've talked about the phrase process theology, well, question, do you use that phrase when you when you give talks in North America and Israel and
2: Uganda? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I want people to know what it is. It, really? it, it wasn't well known in the Jewish community. Um, you know, my one of my stories I tell, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who is widely known as the author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, went giving a book tour, and people would tell him again and again and again, oh, that sounds like process theology, or that sounds like Whitehead. By people, I mean, non-Jewish people. And Rabbi Kushner, like any well-read rabbi would say, who? Because Whitehead is still a well-kept secret. Um, And with some notable exceptions, um, John Cobb being one of them, you being another, Catherine Keller being another, there are others. But many of the early writers of process theology wrote in a way that it would have been better if they had just translated it back into the original German and the English is dense and turgid and impossible. Um, Which is so funny because Whitehead, when you read his non-philosophical writings, is utterly engaging and as a human being was extraordinary, extraordinary compelling. but I think what makes him great as a philosophical systematizer also makes him basically impossible for living people to read. So um, so what I've done is I think something similar to what Kushner has done. I've taken those process ideas and put them into language that's more accessible. And I've used Jewish examples and Jewish scripture because that's what I know best, but but certainly, when I read you or Catherine Keller or John Cobb, I feel like we're practicing different flavors of the same worldview, the same religion. You know, I've mentioned this to you before. I think as much as you could say what I'm practicing is process Judaism, you mm-hmm. could also say I'm practicing Jewish process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that regard, we have different adjectives, but the same religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's as much true, you know. So when when John Cobb and I we had a wonderful conversation years ago when I first was getting to know him, and he wanted I talk about what a Rebbe is. Mm-hmm. And he said, Well, what's a Rebbe? And I said, Well, you know, a Rebbe is this holy soul who's not in not perfect, but but lives the divine will so well that you kind of hook yourself to them and they help pull you up. And he said, Oh. Jesus is my Rebbe, and, and that's exactly right, you know. So, um, so I do think we have commonalities that are far more important than the garments that we clothe our faith in, and that's not to say they're not real. I know that I get deep, deep joy from my Jewishness, and you get deep, deep joy from your Christianity. Um, turns out garments matter, but, but what we're clothing is a sense of a dynamic relational holiness that that crosses lines and, and should. If there's one mindfulness that makes all of these different traditions possible, they should have more in common than what divides them.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Brad, would you tell the story of, of driving to meet John Cobb? I think yes. that, that's an interesting story. I think I think others
2: would like to know that. I am happy to tell that story. I'm happy to sing his praises any chance I get. So as I mentioned to you before, I invented process theology, and I wrote a paper on the subject. And then in the process of writing that paper, I found out, son of a gun, there are other people who beat me to the punch. So when I wrote the paper, I was very eager to make sure I didn't make any stupid blunders. I sent it out to a bunch of Jewish theologians, many of whom just blew me off. uh, And I sent it to this total stranger, this guy named John Cobb, who looked to me to be the living granddaddy of process thought. Um, if, if process theology has a living guru, it's John Cobb. Um, and this remarkable man who has touched the lives of thousands and thousands of people, and who has lots of things to keep himself busy with, he, I get a phone call, Hi, this is John Cobb. He said in that beautiful, beautiful Georgian accent, he said, I read your paper. I'm really interested. We have to talk. Will you come spend a day with me? So he lives out in Claremont. I drove out to Pilgrim's Place, which is a place for retired ministers and pastors and missionaries. Um, And we spent a remarkable morning sitting in his living room, he and I, and we just talked. And then he took me to lunch. And then we sat for the afternoon and talked again. And and I drove home feeling like I had acquired a friend and a teacher. And, you know, the the challenge is, in any line of work, people can present a public persona that's kind and noble. And, you know, we're, we're hearing of famous television characters whose trademark is kindness, and it turns out they weren't practicing it. John is the real thing. John Cobb is everything you would want a theologian to be. He is a truly God-infused individual whose love of God makes him more loving and more accepting and more supple. Um, And I continue to just revel in his kindness uh, and in the light he shines in the world and in the kindness he has shown to me time and time again
1: where you are so important to the process community and there's some shining in you too. And Thank you. You need to know that, you're a teacher for so many. Thank you. And um, to close, Brad, um, who are you becoming? Mm-hmm. And, and what is uh, pulling you forward these days? And what new joys Do you know and and sadnesses? Um, Tell us who you're becoming.
2: Well, I think. If you know, know. yeah. Well, the part that I know and part I don't know because it isn't—it's still becoming. I'm a fairly extroverted person, and what I've discovered in these last several months is that I can be happy without being in a crowd.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That's news. Um, So I've been able to develop a deeper interiority and contentment. I'm happy working out, being at home, sitting under the tree, sitting with my wife. I have two adult children, watching them, being with them. Um, And then I continue to be nourished by my students. and, And seeing them go out in the world and become rabbis and do such good. Um, I run not only the school in Los Angeles, I run a rabbinical school in Berlin, Mm -hmm. Potsdam, and seeing the rabbis here and there shining a light and modeling what a rabbinate of compassion and acceptance and joy can look like. That Mm -hmm. beats my soul. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I know you do that. I want you to make sure that you tell Elena. Yes. Hello. And your daughter is. Shira. Shira and Jacob. I will do that. Give them warm regards from me, but also from the process community. You you tell them that um, like it or not, they're part of the community too.
0: Um.
2: (laughs) I will tell them that. And that means a great deal, especially to Jacob.
1: Yes. Well, he he has our respect and our love. And I, you know, you, um, you wrote an essay for me when you're talking about uh, swimming with Jacob.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And swimming, well, I think it was with, with turtles, with, with turtles was or whales. With like turtles that. and, no, we did not
2: swim with whales. We swam with turtles and fish and coral.
1: And in the essay, you said, now he sees things and he knows things that I don't see That's and right. I don't know. That's right. And the, the, the gifts of re, receptivity to yes. Revelation, uh, he's got some gifts that we need. Indeed. We need. Indeed, we and, do. And big blessings to him and, and to you, Brad.
2: Uh, Thank you, Jay, and to you too. Keep shining the wonderful, loving light that you do. It's, uh, it feeds me and it feeds so many of us.
1: Will do. You
0: the same. Thank you. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.